0: You are listening to Friends of Europe's podcast. Don't miss our debates on global and European issues that span political, economic, social and environmental challenges. And follow our website at friendsofeurope.org. Good afternoon, everyone, uh, and welcome to our discussion today on the dilemmas and challenges facing fragile states. What we'll be looking at is the role of the private sector in helping to implement the very ambitious Agenda 2030 Sustainable Development Goals. Now, all of us in this room, I I see a lot of familiar faces. I see a lot of experts, people who know a lot about this issue. We all know that official development aid flows are important, very important, but they're not going to be enough to meet the enormous financing needs if we are to implement the SDGs, Agenda 2030, in a a credible manner. So there will be need for private sector uh, financing. And I think the question really today is, the private sector, we all know, has a transformational role to play in this uh, agenda, in achieving this agenda, but is it doing it? Can it do better? Uh, And how can we help? And how are the institutions uh, we're talking about, what are they doing to help? Um, The issue is, of course, an important one. I know there's um, some, let's say, confusion about figures, But the World uh, Bank Group says there are about 30, I think 35 countries that are uh, described as territories that are fragile or conflict affected. And uh, the assumption is that by 2030, half of the world's poorest people will be living in these countries. Now we can talk about how many countries we really identify as uh, fragile, but I think the basic assumption is the right one. I mean, it's going to be a lot of poor people living in these countries. And as a result, uh, achieving the SDGs is important for the people in these countries, obviously, but let's be frank, also, for global peace, development, and and security. Um, All of you here know that Friends of Europe is very closely involved through the Development Policy Forum in in these discussions on the SDGs. We've had several meetings, and I think... Many of you have actually attended these meetings. Uh, this time around, we're cooperating and very delighted to be cooperating with the International Finance Corporation on this issue. Um, before I introduce the panelists, I just all of us should think about one more thing, I think, just not just about the fragile states, but the overarching environment in which we're living um, in the Trump era uh, with Brexit and general donor fatigue or public opinion becoming less and less perhaps interested or committed to development? How is this going to impact on our agenda, SDGs, but the wider development agenda in 2017 and beyond? And I've asked the panelists to look at this as well. So uh, I'm Shada Islam, I'm Director for Europe and Geopolitics at Friends of Europe. Let me introduce uh, our eminent panellists. First and foremost, let me introduce Nena Stolkovic. Nena, thank you very much for coming here. She's Vice President at the IFC for Blended Finance and Partnerships. You'll have to explain a little bit about what you do. I know the IFC is now celebrating six decades of work in this sector, so we're really delighted to learn from your experience uh, we're going to have Roberto Ridolfi from the European Commission. Uh, and, you know, you all know him, so he'll be coming here a little bit later. Uh, on my left, delighted to have you as well, Vivanu Gnasunu from the ACP Secretariat, uh, Assistant Secretary General for Sustainable Economic Development and Trade. Thank you very much. And last but not least, uh, my old friend Harald Hischofer, He's Senior Advisor at the Currency Exchange Fund, TCX. So, uh, Nena, I'm going to kick off this discussion with you. The rules of the game, uh, all of you who come to uh, Friends of Europe discussions know. I'm going to ask a couple of questions. Uh, I'd like you to answer short and snappy answers. I want an interactive discussion. And then I'm going to open the floor to all of you for your comments and your questions to the panelists. And this is how we'll do. So we've got about 75 minutes for this conversation. Nena, so 60 years of IFC... What are the kinds of issues that you are looking at and what do you, have, uh, what do you envisage for the future? Yes.
1: Okay, thank you very much, Ada. It's really great to be on this stage with, with such, a, such an esteemed um, set of panelists and also very timely to talk about fragility, fragile and conflict-affected countries and what we as development community can do uh, to, to um, help, help them develop. Uh, I'm also very pleased that this event is, is built uh, to some extent around IFC's celebration of its 60th uh, anniversary, and it's really to see uh, such a great interest both, both in the topic and, and hopefully in the celebration that we'll have after, after this session. Um, IFC was created, as, as you know, 60 years ago uh, to solely work with private sector, And we uh, have gone through several phases as we were uh, dealing with the private sector in emerging markets. Uh, The phase that we call uh, 1.0, the initial phase, was to bring Western or foreign companies into emerging markets for the first time. Our very first transaction was with Siemens, who we brought into Brazil. Um, because at that time that was perceived as a risky proposition and they needed uh, to work with someone like IFC. Then our second phase was to try to develop more local uh sponsors local and regional companies so in the second phase we decentralized uh, and started putting a lot more people on the ground uh now we have offices in 100 108 countries uh, with 60% of IFC staff actually being uh, in in uh, other offices not not in Washington and um we have successfully built local uh, clients and local sponsors again helping them both uh, implement their projects partner with others uh um, and and um, what they needed around the value chains uh, that, that 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 were needed, you know, to make uh, make make their operations happen. And um, in the era of SDGs, as you pointed out, uh, with a very ambitious goal for all of us, um, with uh, with the trillions that are needed. Uh, to uh, make uh, all the SDGs happen by 2030, we realize that 1.0 and 2.0 approach will not be sufficient. We also realize that ODA uh, has its limits just because of the size of it and uh, that the private sector will be the one who will need to invest uh, trillions into some of those uh, least developed uh, markets. And this created a new strategy, new approach for IFC 3.0 that uh, we're now talking about, which will be a lot about creating markets. Um, The traditional approaches for many of us have been to wait for a project to become available for financing and then to help structure it and strengthen it. But I think right now we are talking about not waiting for that to happen, especially in FCS countries, but really going into those countries early on and helping create the market. Um, Some examples are, for example, in the energy sector where regulatory framework for uh, energy has to be put in place first, uh, where governments may need to set up units for uh, PPPs that could implement some of the PPPs, where we would leverage the colleagues from the World Bank, and we are very lucky to be part of the World Bank Group, where there is a lot of policy work coming through through the operations of the World Bank in, in, in those countries. Uh, that would have to come in first. And then we would like to identify sponsors, private sector clients, whether they are foreign or or local or regional, who would come into those sectors and us helping them uh, on that. And we realize that there will be two things that will be needed for making this happen. One is to de-risk those operations, those projects. uh, And the second one would be to build capacity, whether it is building capacity of the government to implement its own piece, or b- building capacity of the local sponsor or the value chains that have to be developed. So we will be a lot more proactive on this upfront uh, uh, part of it rather than waiting for all the conditions to be right because in some countries, in some cases, we will be waiting for for too long. I wanted to say that in addition to strong collaboration with the World Bank on the policy uh, front, we also have to uh, partner with other MDBs, uh, other IFIs, and many other partners. Um, and we would like to uh, set some principles around those partnerships, because what we see uh, now is that we are all chasing the same projects including in some of the tougher markets. And uh, our ambition through 3.0 approach is to help create, grow the pipeline of projects, help create those projects that currently do not exist through the approach that I I, I explained. Policy first, uh, de-risking the sector, then bringing the client, de-risking a specific project, building capacity around it that could actually increase the number of projects that we can collectively finance. We think that this approach will take us more from billions to trillions. What we currently see is that some of the projects that could be done by the private sector end up being done by um, the public uh, funding. Uh, I think to me, uh, in the worst case, actually, that that happens through some grant uh, funding. And this is something that we would like to turn around and and go first with the private sector and more commercial uh, approach, if possible. If not possible, we would like to de-risk the private sector uh, so that actually private sector players are willing to go into some of those difficult markets. If that's not possible, then we would look at PPP approaches or then purely uh, public. But I think uh, our ambition is to use ODA, um, all 135 billion, to leverage the private sector. And from the IFC experience, and I'll just stop here and then can talk through the next round of questions, is $1 of uh, financing, our own financing, can leverage $20 of other financing other co-financiers, private sector, Uh, $1 of grant is $1 of of grant. And I just want to leave it at this, and and, uh, this is to demonstrate the power of leverage if we use private sector solutions, even if we need to de-risk them.
0: Okay, so uh, just to ask a very simple question. So the private sector is notoriously uh, risk-averse sometimes, especially when it comes to fragile states. So what are the the arguments, what are the attractions? How do you incentivize this? Because it sounds very good in theory, right? Um, How does it work in practice? I mean, what are the kinds of arguments that you have to use to get them on board?
1: I, I actually am, I'm very pleased with how private sector is moving um, towards you know doing the right things. I mean in uh, in, in January just a couple of weeks ago uh, I, I had contacts with European companies who are looking to um, you know go into the rural areas in Kenya, do something more in in Rwanda, do something uh, in Africa in general, and I'm, I'm encouraged by that. I mean as you know there are leaders who want to lead on sustainability, on development impact, and th- those are the ones who will be our primary uh, clients as we go with this 3.0 approach. There are many regional clients who are also looking to expand their markets who are more familiar with local circumstances but ultimately those markets are extremely difficult. Um, IFC right now does around $1 billion of financing per year out of uh, $18 billion altogether, um, in, in including all, all middle income countries so it's a very small portion of our business right now just to show you um, how Little in a way do we do. It's, it's still higher than what we were doing like 300 million million five five years ago, but definitely not, uh, not enough. And the, the issues in those markets, as you know, are access to power, uh, who's going to set up manufacturing operation if you can actually not have access, reliable access to power, access to finance, how will the value chains develop if SMEs do not have access to finance, access to skills, who will work in those factories, who will work in, in in those operations, and obviously maybe first I should have said investment climate. I think there has to be a good demonstration of the fact that it 's easy kind of to set up businesses it 's easy to bring uh, private sectors in, so we are trying to address those more systematic issues as well through a combination of World Bank. Uh, policy reforms, work with the governments to strengthen the institutions, uh, but at the same time also trying to put our own advisory services to de-risk some of those those sectors. I wanted to mention an example of Azito Power in Cote d'Ivoire, Which is a deal that we are very proud uh, of because uh, we were able to start with the policy reform that the World Bank uh, was doing. This is a thermal power plant that will bring access to power to two million more people and with a very positive climate, climate effect with about 800,000 CO2 emissions. Uh, reduced, um, incredibly transformational project where the World Bank uh, came in first to do the sector reforms. Then IFC structured a, a transaction. Uh, IFC put 135 million. Uh, f- six other IFS uh, contributed with another uh, 350 million, and MIGA uh, provided political uh, risk insurance. These are the type of transactions that we are talking about that we can multiply uh, in Africa and some other fragile, uh, fragile markets.
0: So working as a, wow, uh, working a little bit as a chef d'orchestre, in a sense, putting people together. Uh, I, I do want to ask you, Vivanu, uh, Gnasunu, because we've talked about the role of the private sector. The ACP have traditionally relied quite a bit on development aid and now are, I think, becoming more convinced of the need to create this enabling climate of, for private sector as well. Do you have any uh, opinions, any insights to share with us on these issues?
2: Yes, th- thank you, and sorry for my voice because just uh, just coming from a meeting where we spent three hours discussing investment private sector with our ambassadors, so um, I'm not going to have any rest today. Um, no, clearly, yes, we we come from that, but I think from the from the beginning, and we we base uh, not only the ACP but also the ACP and EU partnership on on trade cooperation. If you're talking trade cooperation, you're definitely talking private sector because it's not, I mean, some time ago we have government trading, but I think the more successful or large scale trading done by private sector. So private sector is not that new to what we are doing, but supporting directly private sectors, yes. I mean, taking it from what Nina just said is giving one euro to, I mean, as grant, is one euro given. Contrary to what will be given to the private sector, but we are seeing it differently. And somehow we are saying the same thing. What we're trying to do now is to say, well, we bulk of our resources are going to be directed through the private sector's support. Meaning what? We're talking about the SDGs and looking ACP is African, Caribbean, and Pacific states, where we have 48 countries in Africa, 60, 60 in, the, in the Caribbean, and 15 in the, in the Pacific. So when you talk about fragile states, we will talk also about vulnerable states, because the fragility in terms of exposure to conflicts, yes, but also to natural disasters, because somehow the consequences are quite close. Some are human-made, some are natural. and. I'll come later on on the need to look into engineering new kind of uh, instrument to support these kind of countries. But in terms of needs, looking at our countries, ACP countries, or fragile states, the youth represent 60 to 70 percent of the population in some countries. It depends on how you define the youth, but... Looking at the figures put forward by the African-European Bank, recently, uh, President Deschenei was saying that we have about 80 million unemployed youth on the continent. And every year, we have another 12 to 15 million coming to the market, and we are able to create only 5 billion, maximum 5 million jobs. So every year, we have more or less about 10 million new unemployed youth. So where are you going to find jobs job for them? Because that's, for me, this is the basics. If you don't respond to that, you can forget about all the rest of the SDGs. That's the only thing we have to focus on. And of course, the rest goes with it. That's why we're trying to say, well, we need to support big business, of course, but we need to really try to look at the kind of activities which create employment, the largest numbers of employment. And you're talking about, uh, Nina mentioned agribusiness, but how best to tackle those ones? If you're looking, combined with the situation where in some sector, cocoa or coconut sectors, the average age of farmers is beyond 60, 60 years old. No, no, no youth is interested in going to agriculture. Yeah. So how you create that interest? Even in countries like d'Ivoire, where these three used to be uh, agriculture create the, the, the wealth of the countries. So we're trying to see how to make agriculture again sexy for the youth to, to, to go there. So for that to be, we need to show them that there's an opportunity to, to finance activity in, in agribusiness. And they are not necessarily looking at being projects. Average, I would say, is between 50 to 200,000 euros project. Those are n- not in the range of the IFC. None of the private equity institutions. So how do you tackle that? I mean, this is a for, uh, the core of our reflection and business. We sp- I was saying, we spent three hours discussing before our, our, our ambassadors just now. We are bringing some uh, uh, perspectives and some proposals, trying to see how, not only through creating the cooperative, but... Try really to link the small farmers or the, uh, the, or the family farmers to the global value chains or the regional value chains, bringing them to build also the regional uh, champions. Uh, this really the call, and that will only become reality if you manage to put in some public money. That's where I'm trying to come to. That's how you should better use the public money we have at hand, the grant money how best to combine it with the private sector money, because again, yes, you can do the regulatory work, you can do but In some of the countries, especially in Africa, the banks have money. Commercial banks, they have money. They are not just interested in financing agriculture because they will tell you it's too risky. If you ask them, what is the risk? Well, apart from the tenure or the, the, the land issues, they don't know the business. So what we're trying to do with the public money is not only to train the farmers or the cooperatives to develop better projects, but also to train the financial institutions to understand the business. So we're thinking of creating a sort of uh, facility, uh, because one, uh, you know, I don't like to talk my personal case, but I happen to be also a business person and I develop my own Business and agribusiness actually processing some products in my country, and when you sit with the the, the commercial bank, discuss with them, we say, "Well, well, you we, we know you. Yeah, of course they know me, so it was easier for me. But the the rest of them, the hundred or the thousand there, they don't know, they don't know them. So the only thing they need to know is to have confidence on the project. So how do we build that confidence? That's why the public money can come in, training them, but also making it available, uh, uh, making available to the financial institution the possibility to call upon some technical assistance to come and to assess the project for them, but of course reliable technical assistance. So we can commit to that, work on that, build something, and also manage to put that money available through the regional development banks. We think that really is necessary. So maybe I'll stop there and then I'll come back to what
0: Okay, no, but you've raised some very interesting points. And I think before I go to Harald, I'd like to just get Nena's response to it. How do you make sure that the sectors that you're investing in, the private sectors, uh, private business investing, are the ones that are actually needed to create the kind of jobs that uh, you've talked about?
1: Right. No I, I hear you on the issues in the um, agriculture, and the issues are obviously linked to the infrastructure to the access to markets, to the know how of the farmers and that 's why I, I like to talk when I talk about agribusiness, I also like to talk about preparing the sector or uh, working with farmers, helping them with know how on how to produce sustainable crops and and the rest of it. But I just want you to say that it doesn't need to be public uh, money it, it can we can we can try to bring uh, the private sector player who we can de risk. By putting some some public sector money, um, uh, that's what we call blending, right? And and de-risk uh, that particular operation for the private sector, but ultimately have um, have create some sustainability over over time. This is this is what we are trying to accomplish. And um, in in IFC, we uh, will talk a little bit about EIP, um, But I I just want to say that we have a very similar uh, tool. For the first time in 60 years, we were able to secure 2.5 billion. Billion dollars from the IDA fund, fund for the poorest, that gets replenished every three years, because there is a belief that we can actually do some of these things through the private sector. So we'll have access to to 2.5 billion of IDA 18 uh, to uh, implement private sector solutions and de-risk private sector players, whether it's agriculture, energy, or, or or some other 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 sector. So this is where we are trying to shift. This is to us this 3.0 because if we demonstrate that private sector can be in that agri operation in that particular country, more of them will be willing to come. The market will be opening up and the sector will be opening up.
0: So This is the private sector window you were talking about earlier. Okay, thank you very much. Harald, you are the voice of uh, private sector here on the panel. Let's hear your comments about what you've heard so far.
3: Well, um I'm it's it's really not really only private sector because most of our shareholders are development banks and actually <laughs> nena is sitting next to me and the IFC has invested uh, 30 million into TCX but allow me briefly to introduce you uh, as a ve- uh, the vehicle which which we have been managing now also for 10 years we also have an anniversary this year it's a 10 years so we have we have started to learn how to walk, and now we are ready to run uh, hopefully very fast with all the youthful energy of a 10-year-old institution with um, experience. We have um, – perhaps I, I should reach out further. I was with the IMF for, for 14 years before, and when I left the IMF, people thought I'm crazy to join uh, an institution which wants to hedge currency risks, very exotic currencies. cannot be done. Now, we have done it. We have done it in 700 transactions in the last 10 years of our operating history. Um, we have uh, hedged about $4.5 billion, mainly in microfinance sec- micro and SME financing. And if you think that the average loan size is 200 to $300, you can imagine how many people we have protected over 10 years. And we are now ready to present here uh, a... a, a an initiative where you say, look, if you want to help in fragile states, you know, look at the macro risks. Not, don't look only at the individual business. Look at the macro risks which these managers cannot influence. Because this is sometimes the main barrier. And, uh, and, and TCX has been working with its shareholders, FMO. I've seen um, uh, most uh, European development banks to to develop solutions in local currency where you finance these SMEs in local currency and thus take out the risk. However, we have still some obstacles because um, what we have noticed when you go into very fragile states, and for example, each one has a different definition of fragility, I I looked it up and I came to 19 states, perhaps because fragility is our bread and butter, so we, we assume we are only acting in fragile states, right? Uh, we're covering about uh, 70 countries. Um, so, for, uh, for say the truly, fra- the truly fragile states, you know, depending on the definition, are 20, 30. And TCX can offer in most of this, those except seven now solutions. We have done actually in the 20 most fragile states or, or 11 most fragile states 360 million of transactions over the past few years. But we, we face a challenge, and the challenge is that these risks sometimes are so high that a private sector project simply cannot pay for the insurance if it's well-priced on a sustainable way. And that's the challenge which we need to overcome. Uh, blending, yes, we will discuss one day tomorrow about such solutions. I think that is a very good uh, way, and, and the IDA private sector window is, is guiding us in the right direction there too. And Hopefully also, also resources available. But um, uh, I I think, you know, there there is a lot of opportunity coming. And I'm very optimistic.
0: Okay, thank you very much. So we still don't have uh, Ricardo with us, but uh, he's promised to join us. So we'll wait for the questions uh, to him later on. But I'd like to open the floor now. You've heard the opening salvos from our panelists. As I said, there's a lot of expertise here. It's quite a question to ask. Uh, please uh, put your hand up, identify yourself, and my colleagues have microphones that they'll bring to you. So uh, I'd, I'd urge you to start asking questions. Uh, please uh, over here, um, Raphael. But please keep your hand up. Could I have a show of hand of hands of people who are going to be interested in asking questions? Very good. Very good. Okay, please, sir.
4: Yeah. Hi, I'm Jesse Griffiths from. European Network on Debt and Development (Eurodad) here in Brussels. Um, I just wanted to broaden some of the discussion out a bit because the topic is unlocking private sector investment, and ask the panel a couple of things about what I see as slightly bigger issues than some of the ones that have been raised. So the first is on public investment. So if you look at the studies of what drives foreign direct investment to developing countries, uh, top of the list comes think well, apart from the size of the market, come things like the state of the infrastructure, the health and education of the workforce. These are things which depend very heavily on public investment. So for me, actually, the first answer to this question is how to get uh, public institutions working better in those countries, the rule of law and issues like that. So I wonder if there's something there. The second is uh, I, I sense a bit of the tenor of the discussion being about foreign investment. But in fact, that's, as we know, a very small percentage of the investment private investment in developing countries, and particularly in fragile states, which is overwhelmingly domestic investment. So it's about uh, how to mobilise domestic savings. And So there's a huge issue, for example, of capital flight, uh, how to reduce that. Uh, it seems to me a really important question. And then I can't resist just saying something very briefly about some of the jargon. Uh, billions to trillions, well, yes, but there are already trillions of dollars of private investment in developing countries, and the UN has a new study out, the WVSP, which says that uh, to meet the SDGs, the estimate is that increases in investment need to be of the range of 11% per year in developing countries. And historically, they've been 9%. So it's not like, you know, it could be portrayed as if this is a hopeless case and we need to totally change the world. But I think actually we're talking about building on what we know already. Uh, leverage. If you're 20 to 1 leverage, you're a 5% investor. Does that mean you really have much influence yeah. over the things? I just, I just wondered if you could unpack a bit of this jargon.
0: Absolutely. Thank you very much indeed. I'll take another question. There was a hand that went up there, a lady over there. Please keep your hand up so my colleagues can see you. Yeah. Uh, hello, my name is Alain Chagas. I work in the Subcommittee on Human Rights
1: at the European Parliament. And uh, my question is on how do we... What are your thoughts on truly adopting a human rights-based approach to ensuring that public-private partnerships and blended finance really are not just a matter of removing risk for the investors in the private sector, but making sure that all risk is removed for the
0: people who are supposed to benefit uh, from these quote? From these investments. Thank you. Thank you very well. I'll take one more question from this round. Was there anyone here in the middle? Yeah, gentleman over there. Just keep your hand up, please.
5: Um, thank you very much. Slightly different angle on the on the, on the the question of uh, uh, of leverage in other forms. I mean, one was, you know, you talked about leverage on the other hand, you emphasized the importance of working with the World Bank part of uh, basically on the the institutional framework, on the capacity building, et cetera, which I guess, you know, is is typically the kind of thing that is is more grant-based. So I think the question is about the mix in a a way then how to get that right and, you know, how to connect the work on the enabling environment to the actual investment opportunities. The other thing that that I was wondering was, you know, when you gave the example of the Cote d'Ivoire thermal power plant and you talked about the mobilization, you talked about, you know, IFC putting in 125 other... I, IFI is putting uh, in 350. For me the question was then but if it was about de-risking and getting others in what, where was the, what was the contribution of other commercial investors who could go there essentially? And that's sort of the crux for me of the problem because you won't be able even if you leverage your balance sheet to do it just from, from there. And the um, uh, maybe in that regard, uh, sorry for going on, but it's very interesting. So you know you, you said you got these IDA resources to de-risk how are you de risking? I mean, can you just use up the resources? And, 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 and how actually do you de risk other than providing guarantees or maybe being able, yeah. so to speak, to burn the money? And finally, a question uh, on, 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 on the comments here that said look, there's money in African domestic banks, but it's not, sort of, it's not going to these productive investments in the agriculture sector. The question is where is it going? I mean, where is it going to? What's the productive investment if you're a domestic commercial bank? You should be sitting on the money. You need to invest it somewhere, basically, unless you, know, you have a problem with your business model. Right.
0: Thank you very much for those three questions. I think you Nina, know, let's uh, let's take these uh, in the first round. yeah?
1: Excellent questions, and um, I, I just want to acknowledge that this is a very difficult topic, right? Uh, and nobody has probably the right answer, so to me it's great to hear uh, some of these questions, and, and obviously to build some some of the responses into what we are trying to do, especially in terms of collaborating with other MDBs and, and IFIs. Maybe, maybe the question on, on human rights, I really appreciate the question, and as we were sitting with MDBs around the same table a couple of weeks ago, we were actually, we want to put um, equity and inclusion as one of the key pr- connecting principles. Because you can de risk a monopoly and you're not going to accomplish anything. I mean, I, I think that we, we do want something that will work for the ultimate poor. Um, and when we blend, we want to blend to make sure that poor poor people have access, access to water, access to other basic services, access to power. So we have a lot of experience in blending in certain sectors, and this is one of the lenses that we put, but now we would like to have a coordinated approach with all the MDBs so that when you blend, one of the principles is to make sure that there is equity there and that there is inclusion, especially of very poor people. Um, on the last question... Um, uh, the, we have been trying for years to strengthen the link between um, different institutions in the World Bank group. Um, and, um, and now the two goals, as you know, uh, kind of uh, helped us connect a little bit better. But now we have a range of instruments that are actually helping us do that. Uh, the, the first one is the diagnostics, uh, where we do a joint diagnostics in the country. And we are now going to strengthen the private sector diagnostics as part of that so that we can be very clear in which sectors we have a better chance, you know, to open them up to the private sector and what is needed. And then we will try to put some conditionalities into the loans that we are giving to the governments, so that we actually make them uh, do some of this opening up of the private sector, not just pouring the money into the roads or budget support or this and that. My colleagues from the World Bank would be better able to explain uh, all all, all, uh, that the bank does with the governments, but we think that there is important leverage there and uh, the World Bank is not the only one who can have that leverage so that's where we want to team up uh, with other MDBs but uh, to, you said whether the governments will be willing to open it up to the private sector I think we, we want to work on that. First through a proper diagnostic, some data uh, to showcase to them what happens if you bring the private sector but then um, make make sure that the funding to them somehow links to, uh, to that and then we come up with a joint strategy uh, country partnership framework strategy for that particular country where we are now a little bit more clear what will IFC do in the private sector, what, uh, where MIGA instruments will be needed, and then what the World Bank um, will do. Uh, in the Azito case, that, there was no blending involved there. I mean, it was simply a package deal with the um, IFIs. The de-risking came from the MIGA uh, political risk uh, insurance, um, and there are many other examples where we actually did blend some of the concessional instruments with more commercial ones. de um, risking instruments, I can tell you about the window, and uh, we're still developing some, some of this. Uh, we have uh, half of it will basically go for risk mitigation of infrastructure projects. This will be mostly guarantees uh but without the sovereign counter guarantee uh so uh, de risking let's say the the soe's who are off takers of of uh, on power contracts for example this is the part that we will try to mitigate again for a private sector uh player to be willing to to go into that particular country so half of it will be that um another i would say 400 million will be related to the local currency uh, facility where we will try to improve some of the conditions that Harold talked about through blending to uh, open up more markets uh, for others also to come in to make make a local currency more affordable and build capacity of local institutions who will be doing hedging. And uh, building capacity is also the way to de-risk, by the way, when you help the clients deal with environmental and social issues, with management issues, with value chain issues. So that, that would be kind of underlying all of the tools. And then the 600 million will be through blending blending of more concessional instruments we don't blend grants we'll be blending maybe somewhat subsidized loans to the minimal level possible in order to bring commercial financing in part of that so there are, there is a range of instruments under the IDA private sector window and and just to repeat for the first time ever we have such a significant tool for the next three years to be deployed in in poorest countries especially fcs I have some comments on the first uh, range of questions, but let me, let, let's hear from, from let, other colleagues. Yes,
0: but we'll come back to, uh, come back to that. Uh, there was a question about the human rights uh, agenda also and a question to you about mobilizing domestic savings. And I was wondering if you could give us some insights into that because, I mean, those are the two issues that keep coming up um, when it comes to investments in, in uh, Africa and other developing countries, especially the fragile states.
2: Yes, thank you. I mean, on human rights, of course, I think we can only support any attempt trying to take action which can include or increase the protection of human rights or to reduce the breaching of those rights. So our perspective is to take that into consideration even in assessing even the, the, the project from the beginning. So I think what you were saying is that in, among the criteria to consider Uh, we should maybe go at the micro level even before getting to the country to to include those criteria in the the assessment of the project. But if you are talking about uh, a private set of projects, uh, it becomes a bit more difficult because you should not end up penalizing twice those who are supposed to be benefiting from from those projects. If you are saying, well, I'm not going to to X country because the government is doing such, such and such, Will that mean that if not going, their situation, will be bet- they will be better off at the end of the day? Or should we try to use the opportunity from going there, investing in a certain aspect of the, of the life of people, improving their daily life, to at least give them capacity to, 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 to raise up and to maybe be able – to compete better or to uh, to to face be- uh, uh, in, in a better position the the, the power. So it, it has to be taken into account in any case. But the way you, you you do it is not that clear. You cannot just say I'm not going to that country because the human rights situation is not that clear or is not really it's really bad. Uh, you may end up actually achieving the contrary or what you you have in mind. So uh, we'll be happy to discuss further and and see what are the options you have on the table and how that can be discussed or integrated in the tools that we have at disposal. Uh, on mobilization of domestic resources, definitely, yes, what we have seen is some, most of those uh, institutions, they just use the easiest way of using those resources is buying government bonds, which is the easiest way of using that resources. It's not going to the economy. Actually, you are even putting, in some cases, uh, more risky situation because you are investing all the resources only in the country and in the government which actually uh, may not have this level of governance which is necessary uh, uh, for this kind of investment to be made. But what I didn't hear up to now, I'm not putting question, but is really – the answer to the question we're supposed to address. Because what we are saying is not telling me really how we are attempting to create a greater number of jobs for people. Because still, we, I remember we, we, we put some money for global index uh, uh, insurance facility, 25 million grant money, because we felt necessary to develop new tools in terms of insurance. So really, you're talking about the risking And the question was, how are we risking? Because then you go to the agricultural sectors and you try to protect, against the risk. People don't invest in agriculture because they say, well, they depend too much on the weather. So if you can put in agriculture insurance, that will actually reduce uh, a little bit the risk for them because in any case, there will be some payments. So I think that's how we're thinking. And this can be done when you're talking about new product, insurance product, new market, the private sector will not go directly into that. We need some public money. When, I, when I'm saying we use public money, it doesn't mean that you have to put it into where private sector should be more effective, no. But if we have to create new product, you need, this is a, it's a public good, this is our job. We have to put public money to create, to open new doors, and pay in the premium for the first year with a perspective that after five or six years, the private or, or the beneficiary will take over. So, this is kind of new thinking we need to have. If not, we'll not be going into the direction we should go.
0: So, Harold, you have some experience yep. in uh, insurance. Well, I, I
3: thought perhaps let me entertain you with a specific things, what we did and how we actually helped, uh, not, rather than the theory, the practice. Um, you pr- most of you have heard of MCOPA. MCOPA is a is a, a rooftop solar solar home system provider, very successful in East Africa, business in in Kenya, in, in Uganda. They have connected already, provided electricity to 500,000 families. They're adding about uh, uh, 5,000 uh, 5, a, a, a day. I'm not quite sure about this number now. But growing extremely fast, right? Um, but you need a lot of money to, to finance that expansion, the working capital. Uh, MCOPA is very socially conscious, so they don't want to, exp- and this brings to the question from the parliament about, uh, I interpret it now consumer protection. You know, we want, uh, MCOPA wants to protect its customers. It wants to protect it against sudden depreciation of the exchange rate, typically energy in Africa has been financed in dollars and, and, and they have treated the FX risk typically as a cost add-on factor for the regulators. So whenever the uh, currency depreciated, you had increases in the household bills. Now these households are not like European households that you go to your savings account and just, you know, draw it down a little bit more if your electricity bill is higher. These people have to forgo other expenditures. So MCOPER very, very consciously said we want to offer stable payments in local currency to protect our customers. But if you have um, then, so they, they sell these whole home systems and they get repaid within typically one to two years. So it's like a microfinance business. Problem is that they need to prefinance these systems they are selling at uh, local c- uh, currency installments. So in order to pre-finance, typically they receive loans in in dollars or euros, and they have approached responsibility, which is a a fund in Switzerland or or in in Luxembourg, based in Switzerland, the operations, which is very much involved in microfinancing, and they have expanded into the solar home system supplies. Now, uh, they gave them a loan in local currency, and they hedged it with TCX. All of that required no grants. There was no subsidy involved. It was all done on market terms in a very sustainable way. So, so in that way, we have, to, with new innovative technologies, delivered uh, a, a financial product which was very healthy and was very sound for the final consumer. And we have created access. And access to energy means there are no kerosene lamps burning. There is a lot of credit history created. These people have created an asset which they can use in the future to get more loans for, a, for education, for small entrepreneurship. And I think these are the models which we need to investigate further to, to reach this impact, to create the employment for these 10 million people which come into the market and right have no jobs. I think that's uh, a specific example.
0: So, Harald, what you did was you sidestepped some of the regulatory deficiencies, as it were just went directly to the consumer, directly to the person who was using it?
3: I I would not call it a uh, regulatory deficiency. Um, um, This is the the situation, but what what has happened, the innovation, uh, which which is, there are a number of innovations in these deals. The first innovation is clearly that there are solar panels now, Mm -hmm. and the costs are declining very rapidly, right? It is viable now to produce decentralized energy, much cheaper than the utilities, and that actually will be a big problem for all people who have loans and assets and utilities in the future. So uh, the the solar, that's the first innovation. The second innovation is, in my view, even more exciting, and it has to do with microcredit and, and big data that these, uh, these uh, MCOPAs have very low default rates because they have very good control over the repayment patterns of, of, of these people and they are working together with them, creating a credit history. So they have very low default rates and that allows them to price very reasonably th- their products. And the third innovation was TCX uh, because we, uh, we were able to, um, to hedge uh, these currencies where nobody else provided the hedge before uh, and uh, at, at market rates, so we are sustainable. Um, we have survived four global crises and completely intact our capital. So uh, that's uh, important to emphasize because if you want to go from, bi- from billions to trillions, you need to have high efficiency in the utilization of capital.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Ninet, before I go to you, uh, is it something quick that you want to respond yeah, I want to, to go it? to the first
1: question, okay. which I thought was very...
0: I will give you the floor in a second, but I have some more people coming in, and then let's do another round. So, the gentleman over here. Uh, uh,
6: Thank you, Madam. My name is Dar from Somaliland, and I want to ask uh, two questions.
0: Hold the the microphone.
6: Two questions. You know, the first one uh, deals, you know, with framework. The framework, how to create framework, you know, for these fragile states. Uh, like banking as someone has already spoken and uh, secondly you know the problem of capital flight from Africa Uh, this is a very uh, uh, big problem for African countries Uh, is there a way to indicate or show or draw their attention that many opportunities of investment exist in Africa, you know, to reduce, you know, problems of youth unemployment. Uh, these are the two questions, you know, that I want to ask the the panelists. This.
0: Thank you very much for thank those uh, for those questions, sir. Uh, anyone else want to come up? I had seen, yeah, I had seen several hands there. So, uh, gentlemen over here, just keep your hand up, and then over there. Yes, there.
5: Yeah, thank you. Thank you to the panel. Um, I'm Paul Horrocks from the OECD. Um, just a question in terms of the sectors you 've spoken a bit about um, agriculture infrastructure i mean when we 're talking about fragile states, I would assume that you know you 're trying you 're talking about economies that are really on their knees, so thinking a bit more about which sectors you would invest in, thinking about revenue streams um, it would be good to get a bit more uh, depth from the uh, from the panel in in terms of what they would think about. Whether it would be financing uh, sectors, SME finance, so just get 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 a bit more sense um, how you would do that because if you need a revenue stream to be able to 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 get the financing. So I just appreciate your your perspectives on that. Thank you.
0: Right. So what goes first, what goes second? The sequencing of how you move, really.
4: Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Right.
0: Okay. Gentlemen over there, please. Uh-
4: Hi, good evening. My name is Milan
3: Paich. I'm from the Foreign Trade Association and we promote uh, sustainable global value chains. My question to the panel is, uh, what do you think is the role of the trade policies of the developed countries in unlocking private sector investment? As we know, it's uh, useless to have any investment in countries if then, for example, these countries cannot export their products back to the consumer markets of which are more developed. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. So, Nina... Uh you can go back right. to the question. Uh, yes, the I wanted
1: to go. It was a very interesting set of questions, <laughs> the first round, um, and just wanted to reiterate again um, that IFC uh, works with both foreign and local companies, and they explain the difference between our 1.0 initial approach and the 2.0 approach. For example, what we experienced in South Sudan is that it's much more likely to get. Uh, a regional company, a uh, nearby uh, kind of country like Kenya to, to have confidence in, in South Sudan at that time and, and to invest then let's say, any, any foreign sponsors. So we really work in parallel on, on, on both fronts. Um, I, I also appreciate your point on billions to trillions, and maybe we overuse this slogan, but I just wanted to clarify that what we are trying to do here is to uh, not to go at least from billions to millions. That was the approach that I was talking about, which was private sector first. Uh, We have, for example, an unfortunate experience where a port in one of the African countries was funded solely through public uh, sources plus a hefty grant from one of the donors where we think that those 600 plus million could have actually come from either a PPP approach or a combination of private and public. Because uh, I, I take your point on public sector financing, but public sources are scarce. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, it, 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 they will never be able to be. Uh, fully used for, for funding what's needed and then on the other hand the private sector will bring those jobs that, that we all talk about and care about so uh, in infrastructure I mean there is we know that there is a gap of around 1 trillion dollars per year that, that that's for sure and then the question is how that gets kind of uh, accumulated if we don't uh, start removing um, that That um, I wanted to mention a, an example of a Haitian company um, where IFC was able to actually bring that operator from Dominican Republic into Haiti, which as you know is very fragile, Um, and they created thousands of jobs, but then there were all kinds of problems that that created to the nearby citizenship, to the sanitation issues, to um, the the living conditions of those people, where obviously those could only be solved through a public uh, financing. So we do look to a public sector to provide complementary infrastructure, but I would just go back to the principle that there is really no need to use scarce public money if private sector could be brought into that. that These are the principles that we want to um, agree on with with the MDB community.
0: I want to uh, welcome our friend Roberto Ridolfi. Thank you very much for joining us. I'm just going to let uh, Nina take a couple of other questions and then ask you, I think we're interested in how you're going to align the investment plan with what already exists or what's going to be your sort of synergies that you can forge uh, in the coming months. But Nina, do do answer some of the other questions.
1: Maybe my colleagues also have have thoughts on that. I mean, it's very hard to talk in general about sequencing uh, of the sectors. But as I said, for us in in fragile and conflict um, uh, situations, it's uh, investment climate in general, uh, which includes uh, trade and competitiveness and advising governments on, on, on issues related to that. Um, uh, access to power, because without that, I mean, nothing else will probably work. Um, access to finance, including to SMEs. And uh, skills, basically, education, vocational training. So, uh, but in different countries, it's different, and we capture that through the diagnostics, as I mentioned, and then through the, through the relevant country strategies. We're focusing a little bit more on, on technology, and um, you know, the broadband issues, because we think that that can drive some of the businesses and entrepreneurship in Africa, and focusing also on venture capital so that we give access to uh, kind of equity funds, especially to startups. ups and, and so uh, there are some, some new, new areas. Um, and I already touched on traded competitiveness. I think that's one of the key areas where we are putting a lot of efforts uh, into Africa, notwithstanding the development countries' Um, you know, rhetorics, I think, because we deeply believe in, in competitiveness. Would
0: you like to comment on some of the issues, about the capital flight and
2: trade? <coughs> well, quickly, those are things we all agreed on in, in this last year to, to work towards mobilizing better the domestic resources. Mm-hmm. And we have our part to do, but I think that's why we're also in dialogue with our. Not only in OECD, but also those who are closer to you, the EU, and to say, we also will be trying to keep the money. But you should try to also put more, I would say, firewall at our level because if the money leaving our countries is going somewhere, so what we need to do is work together to make sure that when the money comes to you, send it back to where it's come from, and we try to do to keep doing our, our our part also on that side. So.
0: Okay, so uh, Roberto, I am going to ask you the ask you the question. Thank you very much for making it. I'm sure you were stuck in a very interesting meeting, <laughs> but do do t- do tell us do tell us uh, a little bit about the. I think you've met earlier today. Some kind of plan or uh, agenda that you have for working together with the European External Investment Plan.
7: Indeed, thank you, thank you. The friends of Europe, uh, they may arrive late, but they arrive always. Uh. <laughs> thank you. And uh, I think, uh, for me, it's an honour to be with you. And uh, yes, we are having very interesting conversation with IFC, as we have launched conversation with the European financial institutions, and most importantly, as we exchanged this morning with the EDFIs, that now have to start to play a much, much bigger role in all this picture. The EDFIs are the European Development Finance Institutions. So I will talk about actors more than instruments or projects. The word projects we have to eliminate from our vocabulary. The word uh, uh, program we have to eliminate. We have to use the word investment. And that's where uh, the private sector not only infuse the money for investing, but also the capacities to deliver creativity, entrepreneurship, and all it takes to create sustainable and decent jobs. I think the first point of policy is that The jobs the EIP is meant to create or maintain, if at risk, will be decent and sustainable jobs. And that is the first message. It's a message that concerns with the policy mandate that the Commission is uh, is, uh, fulfilling in DEFCO and NIA, the two directorate generals. The second is that there are political responsibilities. A perfectly well... uh, Uh, financially rewarding investment in a country may arise problems in terms of human rights, respect of the law, democracy. And as EU, we have a reputation in that. Is that a matter of discussion? I think it is. I think that is why the friends of Europe are friends that never leave the place, even in the hardest uh, circumstances. But when we come to the innovation, and that's the question, When we come to the alignment, the first key word, but I'm sure another advantage of arriving late is that everything has been said, right? (laughs) I'm sure you have heard the word additionality. Additionality. If an investment will happen, there is no need for a public actor to go there, move there, even risk to distort the markets in... uh, conceiving any kind of subsidy whatsoever to push that investment. So additionality is key. If my intervention as a public actor doesn't create that additional volume of investments, then I'm wrong. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm doing something that I shouldn't do. And that additionality is not only in terms of money. Perhaps it's in terms of that decency and that sustainability of the creation of jobs that we are looking for which we are mandated by the taxpayers in the policy of development of the EU. So I think that the traction, when we started that, I think we started long time ago. Eh? The dialogue on the private sector started a long time ago, and the number of uh, small but important successes were achieved. In terms of uh, financial engineering, we started in 2007, with a traditional public-public blending of grants and... Uh, Loans or... And then started with equity. I started myself with JREF in 2007. JRF was multiplying one euro 32 times. But these were episodes. Now the EIP is giving a structure and a system to the whole operation. It's it's, it's sort of uh, putting that kind of modality of operation in development cooperation is very strong in the agenda. I can only suspect that this will become more in the future. We have to keep vigilant that this will still respect a number of principles and criteria which have to do with the policy of development as friends we want to develop in the partner countries. And that is fundamental. That's why the Commission says this is very much an external policy action as it is a development action. The EU, differently from other banks, has got a political profile. And when I proposed in 2010 in Uganda, the first SMEs equity fund, which has been launched by IFAD a few days ago, successfully, that now is operational. The main point was to avoid that the National Fund of the Pension for the Civil Servants was flying to invest in real estate in Kensington, South Kensington, in London. Are we kidding me? That was a main driving force. There were $150 million ready in the pension fund of the civil servants in Uganda to be invested in something that would deliver financial results. We we created this uh, equity fund for SMEs, and now we hope that the pension fund will invest in us, but they still don't believe we will make enough money to pay the pensions. (laughs) (laughs) That is a major... A major kind of movement. eh? When we will attract the trillions, then we will have done our job. Today we are playing with peanuts, but we have to scale up and get the the big money into that. We are also stimulating another approach. I make you an example, biodiversity. You will ask what biodiversity has to do with an investment forum like this one. Well, a lot. Biodiversity, if we manage to take biodiversity into the main financial markets in Wall Street as an index of sustainability, we'll attract the companies using biodiversity as a mean for their own production for investors to invest more uh, in this company. This was the very very genesis of renewable energy. You remember 25 years ago, 30 years ago? Renewable energy was nowhere, and then the index started appearing, giving a, a premium to those companies investing through and with renewable energies. Now, let's do the same with biodiversity, for example, to use less fertilizer but have the same yields, to use less chemicals but have the same kind of product, and you will see then biodiversity going in the top screen of Wall Street rather than in our small peanuts development money discussions.
0: Okay, small peanuts development policy <laughs> great. Uh, Roberto, I'm uh, happy to take a few questions for Roberto, who's, I think, given us some quite interesting indications of what lies ahead. Uh, I have a couple of questions for you, but I really do want to hear your voice. So, uh, please, if you have a question for, uh, uh, yes, I see Roberto. I see Jackie putting up a hand. Jackie, keep your hand up. Yeah, please, can you get a microphone for her? Oh, thanks. <laughs>
8: Yes, thank you. And uh, yes, it's a question for Roberto Just and Jackie. Just to introduce Hale from yourself briefly, Jackie. Save the Children. Um, so, I have a question actually about the opportunity cost of investing in the, in the private sector. Um, so, yes, we all agree that public sector it's scarce resources. We agree that um, you know why spend uh, money on on uh, well, scarce resources from the public sector um, uh, where private sector could do a better job. I guess um, the worry is that if we are um, you, if we are counting money um, that is going to guarantee um, private sector investment as ODA that that money is then lost to quite important Uh, work that's being done in essential services in in developing countries to support public sector. Um, Children are are, are primary beneficiaries of of some of that work. And, you know, as Europeans, we very much value our own public sectors. They're part of the picture. So I guess my question is um, to um, Roberto, how how is the European Commission thinking about ensuring its commitment to um, ODA for public sector investment? And then my question um back um uh to to colleagues from uh, from the colleague from the I- IFC is uh, uh when do you think as a counterfactual uh, it's not a good idea for private sector investment to happen
0: thank you very much jackie anyone else uh, coming in at the moment uh, yes there's a gentleman right at the back yes one right
4: Yes, good afternoon. Uh, My name is Brandon. I'm from the One Campaign. Uh, I'd like to ask uh, Roberto from the European Commission um, if you could just tell us a little bit if there will be... um, any guarantees or any type of allocation uh, of the EIP that will be dedicated to uh, fragile economies. And I wanted to know if, uh, or at least when, there might be some more information on the second and third pillar of the EIP that were discussed in the initial communication, um, because so far we've received quite a bit on the EFSD, but um, not so much on the second and third pillars. Thank you.
0: Okay, great questions. I think I'm going to go back to the panel now, so start with you, Roberto, and then give Nena the floor at the the end and also our two other colleagues. So go for it. Thank you. Thank
7: you very much. Uh, The first question in in reality are three or four different questions, I must say. Uh, um, First of all, domestic resource mobilization. That is key. Domestic resource mobilization because the investments, entre guillemets, into the public sectors, today, vis-à-vis public spending, except, uh, I would say, five to eight countries in the world, what ODA does in that kind of uh, account is peanuts. So the public spending of a country, ODA is at 0.5%, 1%, 2%, with the exception of, let's say, 10 countries. Eh? So very, very LDC's countries, in that case, could be 10%, 8 12 But in the majority of cases, even poor countries, the ODA is at 0.5%, 1%, 1.5%. Very small compared to the general public budget that the country is spending. So domestic resource mobilization, to have more revenues for the state associated with budget support, because where it works is still a very important uh, system, uh, can deliver that. Now, on ODA, the commitment of the EU, as you know, is 0.7% to go to ODA. Now, the ODA discussion is a separate discussion from the discussion on what to do with ODA, right? In fact, what we are proposing to do is to use the ODA, which is today not up to the level committed, in order to increase it, in a sense. Doing ODA stuff, doing ODA things, uh, on, the, on the calculation of it, I know that in Paris there is a, a number of people discussing from morning to evening all these important matters, but let's forget that for, a, for an instance. Let's go back to practicalities, creating jobs. And therefore, for me, if we can multiply the the 0.3, 0.33% today of the EU into, multiply by 10, into 3.5%, you know, that's a lot of money. And that's my point. Now, uh, for the friend of of one campaign, I think on fragile economies, you are very right, spot right on, because it's very easy for a number of uh, my friends, uh, bankers, and investors present in the room to invest in easy countries where there is the judiciary that addresses torts, where there is a relatively well functioning of the state and all the systems. You get a license to do things. Uh, You don't have to pay too much for corruption, stuff like that. But when you have a fragile situation in terms of governance, then additionality is the key word. So then we want to play and uh, we are having a conversation with IFC, and the Vice President knows that, because we need to push the accelerator on those uh, situations where it's more difficult. We have launched Electrify and Agrify for that small kind of uh, investments that today will not uh, find uh, any uh, hospitality in big banks because they are too small vis-à-vis the transaction costs that they entail. On the second, third pillar, you are again right. Second pillar is technical assistance. And we are doing a lot as European Commission today as we speak of technical assistance in many countries, many technical assistance facilities, preparing projects, preparing legislation, assisting countries, capacity. Now, we have to put this together. So we have to make it uh, synergetic with the investment and with the third pillar, which is the dialogue with the private sector the dialogue where we listen to the private sector, what the private sector is looking, and we bring the private sector to the government, or the government brings the private sector to the investors, so that we then short-circuit. To do that, we will have to do some steps inside the house. The Commission is moving into creating a one-stop shop, a web portal that will make the difference. And I, I long to announce that now, I think in six, six months we should have it, a one-stop shop, a web portal where any private operator can find everything it needs uh, without going in 20 different sites and will be dispatched to our delegation, to our financial institutions. That is a dream, but you know, one year ago, the investment plan was a dream as well, and now we're getting closer.
0: Thank you very much, Roberto. So, vivano your comments, please. Uh, can you pass the microphone?
2: Well, I thought this question was quite direct today, to Roberto, so Final thoughts. <laughs> no, I think we we have our conversations with our our partners with the EU and I like it doesn't like me saying that one, I like sounding different, not for the sake of sounding different, but to insist on the residual roles of the ODE. Because we shouldn't get it wrong. If you're trying to put most of the emphasis on using private sector, which I totally support, don't get me wrong, and I said earlier, I came from some private sector background, and I'll go back to that when I finish my duty here, I hope soon enough. (laughs) We should really try to get that connection right. And maybe uh, that's where we really need to focus our attention. The little the peanuts you're referring to, uh, Roberto, that little, let's make sure that where we are putting it, we are putting it in the right place. Because if we miss that, then everything will be a total mess. Because we are still hoping that we can still meet the commitment. You say, actually, if I just make a short conclusion, is that what you are just announcing is that the EU will not meet the 0.7, but try to find a way of meeting that. Well, then do that... In the proper way and make sure that that money because i mean it's not the 0.7 as such which is a it's not the figure what matter is the end going what we wanted to 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 to, to. so let's try to make sure that we work together to match that one we are likely we you know at the acp level we set up a, our a private set of forum we bring together we brought together uh, in october the original focal point because here again what we're trying to do it to make sure that what we're do, we doing from here, as you said, this dialogue with the, with the government, but also the regional institutions, because we have everywhere where they are setting policies, we should be able to get them on board to so make sure that we don't multiply the exercise. Getting it right in one, one go, when you do it from here, you match the interest of the regional institution, but also you match the interest of the national stakeholders. That's how we try to do it. So we hope that in that dialogue, it should be, we will remain together as we are for now and try to, 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 to achieve. Of course, we have on board partners with the World Bank, IFC and others, but we try to work together to make sure that the, the voice of the beneficiaries, if I call them or the clients, maybe more commercial are heard and are taken really into account when we act.
0: Thank you for that word of warning, if I may say so. So, Harold, you already have. a, So, Harold, your point.
3: Well, um, I would like to go back to Paul's question uh, about the cash flows. You know, you know, where there 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 is money out there in the fragile countries. Everybody has uh, some cash, and and the question is just how do how do we access that, and how can we transform that into valuable productivity-enhancing investments, and and invite. And by answering your question, I also want to respond to the lady from Save the Children that, again, let me go to Sola. Um, this is a big business. It's, it means that doing good also means that you can earn a living. You can earn a living in various parts of the value chain. You need, in, in countries like in Kenya, you don't need any public support. It, it goes purely on a financial basis already. And if you are aware that when you replace kerosene lamps with solar-powered facilities, you have immediately a reduction in indoor air pollution, which is particularly the children and the women are suffering from that. So you increase uh, productivity. If you go to the agricultural sector, Mr. Ridolfi knows it better, probably 40% of the crops in Africa are rotting away because including there is no refrigeration. If we can create refrigeration for the uh, energy for refrigeration if we can create credit facilities to do that even in the more fragile states we ha- have immediately an income stream to pay back and pay back perhaps pensioners in germany or pensioners in kenya but i think there are these cash flows one just needs to use imagination technology to access them to transform them in very valuable investments. And sometimes, yes, I think there is is a room for ODA and and selected uh, support where there are market solutions fail. And there are several areas, and, and I think one can discuss that.
1: Thank you very much. Yes, Nina. Uh, Thanks. Before my closing remarks, maybe also towards closing, where the private sector should not invest. It's hard to generalize, obviously, different countries, different conditions, but uh, I will take risk of generalizing. I think it would be where the private sector would not be interested in going because of the either type of risk or the pricing that would never make it viable for the private sector. It may well be um, in some social services or basic services where absolutely you cannot price them ever, you know, even with blending, so that the private sector will, will invest. And I would also think in sectors which will never be sustainable without a subsidy, I think that's something where we would normally not like to blend, would not like to bring the, uh, the private sector. And you took a scaling solar example. I think a few years ago, nobody thought that we would be doing so much through the private sector in, in solar in Africa, but guess what's happening? I mean, and, and the initial deals, we remember them vividly, required quite a lot of blending, but we are proving the concept now because uh, the sector needs less and less blending and it's, it's very market-oriented. I think my closing remarks is... I mean, this is not black and white, I think, to create the markets. And yes, we are not talking about a project or a program. We're talking about opening up and creating sustainable markets uh, and and, and, uh, creating jobs and growth, you know, through that. We will need both private and public sector to to work together. And uh, for private sector to go into some of these most difficult markets, we already know it through 60 years of experience, we will need to de-risk them and build capacity, both of the governments, to handle what that brings, but also help that private sector, uh, because as I said, building capacities is a lot of advisory services, a lot of TA around the value chains, and also help Um, the risk around certain issues. And for that, again, very, I think, important closing remark in this type of setting, partnerships will be necessary. Nobody can do it alone. I agree uh, with Roberto. We are all drop in the ocean when we look at what are the needs out there. And we can debate the trillions, but still a lot to be done by us collectively. And therefore, we should just need to make sure that we don't have a race to the bottom undercutting each other and competing with each other but leveraging all of us to take this to the next uh, level of scale.
0: Thank you very much, Nina. So uh, just to bring this, uh, I have to say, very interesting conversation. I have to say, for me, a very reassuring conversation of all of our commitment in this very difficult world to certain ambitions and principles and values of the Agenda 2030. Um, I heard a few words that really struck me as important. Imagination. Uh, in, in development, uh, innovation that we've focused, focused on, and ideas, new ideas that are coming up. And I think um, for someone like me who's been following this. Uh, development conversation, as you know, uh, Roberta, for several uh, years, if not decades. It's very interesting to see the changes that are coming, and they're coming fast and furious. I think there's no doubt about it. Agenda 2030, I think, is a remarkable achievement, and I think we need to, in these difficult, troubling times, we need to really uh, cherish it and nurture it and make sure that we have enough funding for it. And and that's why I, I get a little, I have to say, uneasy when we compare... ODA, to private sector, to innovative financing, to domestic resource mobilization. There are also new donors out there. I think, really, in this world, if we're going to get rid of poverty, uh, we need to bring all of these things into, in, together. Uh, we also have the informal sector. We have the special needs of women, of children, vulnerable populations. And I think we can't do it, as you said, Nina, uh, alone. So uh, synergies, and it's good that the... Uh, European Commission is talking to the IFC and others, and coordination and, and uh, cooperation, as you said, partnership. So please join me in thanking our panelists. I think you've brought forward some very, very interesting ideas into the debate, and also to thanks to all of you with your experience and expertise that have added to this uh, very interesting conversation. So please join me in thanking everyone.